It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is going to join us in just a moment. We're going to get updates on, boy, some big security flaws, both Mac and Windows, a big Windows update, a big Macintosh update. And then we'll answer uh, some great questions from you, the audience. In particular, buffer bloat will be one of the many topics we'll talk about. Stay tuned. Security Now is now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 348, recorded April 11th, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 141. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite.com. Automatic, continual, unlimited backup for your computer files, just $59 a year. Yes, try it free at Carbonite.com and use offer code SECURITYNOW to get two bonus months with purchase. It's time, and there has never been a better time. For Security Now, the show that covers keeping you safe online with our explainer-in-chief, Mr. Steven Gibson of the Gibson Research Corporation, the creator of Spinrite, world's finest hard drive maintenance utility. He's also the author of a great many free security uh, programs. And uh, it's a Q&A time, isn't it, Steve? Hey, Steve. It is, Leo. It's great to be with you again, as always. Um, Elaine, who apparently not only as we know, transcribes these podcasts, but actually listens to them. She immediately emailed me last week when you had referred to me as explainer-in-chief Yes, and was trying to remember... Right. What was I, the other word I used? It was debunker. <laughs> you are. You are the debunker so, and explainer. <laughs> we, don't, we don't do that much debunking, but when there's something hey, that needs it, we deliver it. When debunking is needed, the man yeah. is here. So we've got, this is a Q&A episode, a uh, bunch of great feedback from our listeners, some thoughts and comments and questions, but also, boy, has it been a busy week mm. in security land. We haven't ad- right. actually have had a busy week for a while, but the big news over on the Mac side, of course, is that reportedly um, on the order of 1%, which is a big percentage of all the Macs, have been infected with this um, some it's variously known as either flashback or flash fake um, it was both so of which made, are misnomers because it no longer works that way but correct yeah it started out back in September of last year so September of 2011 with a a fake flash update prompt uh, for users and they had to provide their their administrator password on Mac. This is all Mac. Um, in, and this, uh, so this used an exploit in order to get into their machine. And it was installing a botnet. Well, over the months, it has evolved its capabilities and finally began using a Java exploit uh, that is exploiting a Java vulnerability, which 
Oracle patched for everybody else mm. back in February. Mm. But because Apple kind of went their own way with Java, you know, I'm sure this was some screaming fit that Steve Jobs had at one point where it's like, you know, we're not going to chip somebody. We need, you know, we need the source. We need to maintain this ourselves. So, so Apple has their own Java build. And I don't know how, what the mechanism is for them synchronize, maintaining synchronization with Oracle, but for whatever reason, Apple is like running their own ship Java wise. But of course we know now they're dropping it 10.7. No longer ships with Java Uh, users who need it have to go and install it themselves. So, so what happened was as a consequence of this un, this known, but unpatched vulnerability, a huge number of Mac systems have been infected with this flashback, flash fake botnet. And uh, the guys at Kaspersky Labs did something really cool. They reverse engineered the latest version, and it uses something we have seen before. I think it might have been Conficker, where it's a date-based cryptographic algorithm to generate domain names so that so that the bots use the date and a sophisticated crypto algorithm to come up with a domain name which is is predictable only if you have all of the information hmm. so if you're if you're a bot or if you're a kaspersky labs reverse engineering guru so they they understood the algorithm. They picked a date a few days in the future, determined that on that date, I think it was last Friday, in fact, the, the, the botnet would start looking for the domain, the .com domain, K-R-Y-M-B-R-J-A-S-N-O-F. What's that? .com. That's, that's the result of the crypto algorithm. And so... What what Kaspersky did was they acquired that domain name and set set up a. <laughs> you mean that pot. the other guys didn't have it? I mean, well, isn't that where yeah. they control the botnet from? Yeah, but they don't need it every day. So so they they, they just you know that one they hadn't grabbed probably because like you know they're like and, and the bots are always straddling several. So the bots are looking at existing domains that they have and also prospectively looking at new ones in order to be, you know, basically uh, uh, anti-shutdown tolerant. Right. So, so, they, so the bots began reporting in at, on schedule at this domain name that Kaspersky grabbed. Thus, they were able to exactly determine the count and location because, of course, they got the IP addresses of the queries coming in for these bots. Um, they found during their period of looking 670,000 <gasps> Mac machines. 670,000 mm. machines. So this was That's a going fair... up. I mean, it was 500,000 when Dr. Webb reported it, then 600,000. Yes. So it's still going up. Yes. Um, so um, 
all a little less than half are in the U.S. From they offer on their site a breakdown, just sort of it's sort of interesting. Three hundred thousand are in the U.S. Ninety four, ninety five, if I round it, thousand in Canada. So Canada is second strongest with a little less than a third of what the U.S. has. Again, half again fewer is a, is about forty seven thousand in the U.K. Then Australia has 41,000, and then it drops quickly. France down at 7,800 or 7,900, and Italy at 6,500 and down from there. So, And I, it was funny because I'm looking at that, U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia. I thought, well, that's pretty much the demographics of TWIT. <laughs> well, it's the English language, uh, English-speaking exactly. populace. When I saw that it dropped in France, I was like, oh, of course, because this is going to be, a non, to a lesser degree, an English-speaking uh, attack. Then they used, and they were careful to say, passive OS fingerprinting, meaning they didn't inject anything back onto the Mac machines or, or do anything active on the Mac machines that were querying, but they did passive fingerprinting to verify that of those incoming queries, they could confirm 98. Four one percent were Mac OS ten version ten point something, so that they confirmed. Um, then they did something very cool, which is, and you sh- you ought to click that that next link there, um, the second one down. They, this says Flash Fake Removal Tool, an online checking site. Leo, just yep. if you want to show yeah. our, our people, what they've done is. Every query, the, the reason they were able to get these counts and to know that they were unique is the queries to this funky domain by the bots contain the Mac's own UUID. It's unique ide- identifying string wow. that, is, that is absolutely unique. So Kaspersky built a database of the 670,000 Mac machines, and any user who is interested can put their machine's UUID into this site and check whether it's logged as infected. So it's a quick well, that's way interesting. of determining. I mean, there's, it's easy enough to determine it with some simple terminal commands. People have written Apple yes. scripts that uh, execute those commands for you. But this would be another way to do it, I guess. Kind of a back-end way of doing it. But you can see if you were ever infected, I guess. They give, yes, flashbackcheck.com is the the domain. So flashbackcheck.com with no spaces or dashes or anything, um, if you're curious. Now, they also have a removal tool. Casper C has a removal tool. Small little thing, 164K zip file which Mac users could use. There are, as you said, online instructions. They're a little complex. And so automating this with a, a single click is a nice thing to do. Um, and Apple has said that, that, of course, obviously Apple has responded to this, as you can imagine. Um, they have patched the, the problem with Java, but only for OS ten versions 10.6 and 10.7 not anything earlier and they don't apparently plan to do so so 
anybody, in fact, they said on their page for Macs running Mac OS 10 version 10.5 or earlier, you can better protect yourself. Yeah, better. You can better protect yourself from this malware by disabling Java in your web browser's preferences. And of course, listeners of this podcast know that we've been long recommending that that everyone disable Java um, or uninstall it if you really don't need it, but if nothing else, turn it off. So this is a, once again, it's a JavaScript, which then invokes Java in order to make this happen. So if you are also running with scripting disabled, by default, you would have that first line of protection and that, that just doing that would have protected you. But, but of then, course, Mac people don't assume that they're in any danger, so they probably don't run with scripting off, which right? Is, which is a great segue because there have been a lot of articles in the last week saying, wait a minute, we thought <laughs> we didn't Max have to worry. Didn't get it. Yeah, Max didn't get infected. And and so, you know, I look around and it's, I guess it's as I've mentioned before, it's because I am in a university town with with UCI right next to me. At Starbucks, all I see is Macs now. I mean, there's been a huge shift uh, with Mac adoption, obviously rising. And clearly, I'm looking at a skewed demographic with, you know, college students, you know, who get a Mac when they go off to school as opposed to a PC, more more so these days than before. So there, you know, there there is a much larger target now for the bad guys and where there's a known exploit and maybe arguably, as you said, Leo, Mac users assume they're safe, so they're not going to be running with JavaScript disabled, not like a large percentage of regular Windows users do that either. I mean, our our audience certainly does, but in general, Windows users aren't. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we, we, we're, we're seeing the inevitable, the, the inevitable uh, uh, catch up, right. for lack of a better term, right. of the Mac situation. I mean, there, there is, unfortunately, there is nothing fundamentally more secure about the Mac. I mean, there it got it always was based on Unix, whereas Windows, you know, back when the days of '95, wasn't didn't have a secure OS security model, and even though NT did, it wasn't really used strongly until XP came along and Microsoft decided, oh boy, you know, with that Service Pack 2 release of XP where they finally turned the firewall on and they've really began to get serious about security. I did read that the Mac support of ASLR, address space layout randomization, was less robust than Windows and that when it was first released, Apple said several years ago, that they were going to improve it, but they haven't done so yet. So, but I don't know that that's you know a that a, a huge issue. But basically, you know, I mean, these are all PCs of one ilk or another, and we're seeing things like plugins such as Java or exploits in JavaScript and browser exploits. Those are now the low-hanging fruit. It's no longer open ports, which you could argue would differentiate one OS more from another. 
because they they have you know completely different internal architectures, Windows versus the Mac. Now it's the stuff running on the OS, which is where our problems are coming from, and they're cross-platform. You know, Java runs on everything, and and clearly. The, whatever it was that was wrong with Java was just as wrong uh, under Windows as it was under the Mac. Um, you know, Oracle fixed it in February. Apple didn't get around to it. And you can imagine they wish they had now. Yeah. This is a bit of a black it's eye. Em it's embarrassing, yeah. And Now, what happens if you get infected by this? It isn't uh, a particularly destructive virus, is it? No, it, does, it doesn't want to hurt you. It wants to use you. It wants to set up camp in your machine uh, check in with these wacky domain names from time to time and participate in spamming and DDoSing, you know, you, the standard botnet okay. stuff. So it wants to commandeer your machine. It wants to Although, use... because uh, all of these uh, um, servers that it's supposed to hook up to have all been kind of closed or, or taken, it's unlikely to do anything if you've got it. Oh, it you can't correct. join those botnets. You you uh, now that it has become as high profile as right, it is, there's right. a there's a huge effort now to shut this down. Um, Apple doesn't yet have, but has said they will have a removal tool. I imagine next week we'll we'll be talking about that because I, I would think they would do it quickly since everybody else already has for users. But there will be an official one from Apple, and all it'll you know it just removes these it, it, the, the 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 required files from the from the OS, and then you're fine. So it's not some horrible, pernicious root kitty kind of thing that you can't ever get rid of or you have to reformat your hard drive and reinstall right. your OS or anything. Right. It, 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 it will leave peacefully. <laughs> so Microsoft also, this we are just past our second Tuesday, and oh, another big one. Yes. Um, they did six bulletins, four of which were critical, but one is super critical because of its pervasiveness through the Windows ecosystem. There's, there's something known as common controls, which have existed from the beginning of Windows. We're familiar with how Windows is sort of always been modular with so-called DLLs, dynamic link libraries. Windows itself has a kernel DLL and a GDI DLL and a user DLL. Um, so it's built from these modules, these dynamic link libraries. Well, a a library which has always existed in Windows is this is called Common Controls, and those are the things that all Windows apps have and use, like the scroll bars on the side, horizontal and vertical, and the the menu system itself, and the the individual window control widgets, the drop-down list box, and the, the um, uh, you know, uh, spin dialogues, and, you know, even, even text fields which appear in a dialogue. All of that is common control. That is to say, that's, you know, all of the, the Chrome that, that embellishes a window is essentially is a common control. You have the window frame, and then all of that other stuff, you know, buttons, and obviously, are common controls also. Anyway, all of that is in a library, which over the years has been evolving. And at one point, they switched their technology from DLLs to so-called ActiveX controls, where then it 
the extension changed from .dll to .ocx. So what was found, and let me get the timing on this right. Um, Microsoft has known that there were some exploits of this for a while, but kept it quiet. So it's being called a zero-day flaw, but I don't really know that that fits so much. But uh, the problem is that the incredibly highly used list view and tree view are the are two controls in the current common control library which can be exploited that is and so of course the tree view is what everyone's used to in windows where you it's like that hierarchical view with the plus signs you click and it opens up it's that outliney kind of thing that's a common control in this library and then the list view is anything that is like a list of things like a like a spreadsheet is a bunch is a list um, and it uses that common control library so there's a problem in that in every version of windows and it's worse than this though because developers want to make sure that their software running on some random windows machine has the most recent common control or the the one that they want because sometimes these things change they've got bugs and so forth they they the, the developer designs an application and even microsoft does this designs an application with a given a given version of the common control well they bundle it with their application because what windows will do is it will look in the in the directory where the executable ran from for for various things that it needs before it goes out and looks system wide for in like the windows system directory and the windows directory and so forth so if a if an application brings along with it the version of the common control library that it wants and expects then it knows that's the one that will be loaded for it when it runs but what this means is that this isn't just microsoft that needs to fix this problem this is everybody all applications that have bundled this now known to be buggy common control are potentially vulnerable now now that we have to mitigate that somewhat because of course the bad guys would have to get this application to invoke the tree view or the list view somehow themselves and that's much less likely to happen the big targets of opportunity of course is ie internet explorer it's using those common controls and uh, office is doing so too and this can be either exploited by IE or naturally by uh, clicking on a link in email that invokes this common control, which is present. So we're recording this on Wednesday the 11th. This all happened. This updates on the, on the 10th. There are mitigating um, um, uh, measures. For example, in Microsoft's own... FAQ, they said uh, uh, under their FAQ for this, 
they, they ask themselves the question, I'm a third-party application developer, and I use the ActiveX control in my application. Is my application vulnerable, and how do I update it? Microsoft's own answer is, developers who redistribute the ActiveX control should ensure that they update the version of the ActiveX control installed with their application by downloading the update provided in this bulletin. So this is Microsoft formally acknowledging that everybody who is sending this out on their own has to take some responsibility. But again, it's not clear how the bad guys would get to that particular instance of the bad control. For anyone who's curious, this is a file called MS. C-O-M-C-T-L dot O-C-X. And it, I wouldn't be surprised if you just searched your file system for it, if you find a bunch of them littered around because different applications will have brought them. Under workarounds, Microsoft said to prevent the vulnerable ActiveX controls from being run in Internet Explorer, you can disable attempts to instantiate the MS-COM control, TreeView, TreeView2, ListView, and ListView2 controls in Internet Explorer by setting the infamous kill bit for the controls in the registry. And we've talked about this, the kill bit for years, because this is an area where Microsoft is beginning to get better with their security, but everything used to just be enabled by default, so it's touchy to come back in and turn things off, even though now they wish... They hadn't been, you know, as liberal with allowing everything to run. The problem is that, uh, that is with doing this is that some websites really do want to use, well, at least the list view, if less commonly the tree view control. So that would break those sites that do that. So bottom line is it has been fixed. This is an important patch Tuesday. So don't wait too long to uh, update this and restart your machine. When I fired up my Win 7 box uh, in order to, to run Skype for the podcast, Leo, of course, it immediately popped up and said, oh, we got secure, you know, important things to do. And I said, yes, update yourself right now. Get it done. And not to be left out, Adobe also yesterday um, released new versions of Reader and Acrobat. There's no end of oh, oh and I, sh I should mention i just i didn't quite uh finish saying that we that this is being at this zero day if it's so-called zero day this common control problem is being actively exploited in the wild so this is important you know this is um gonna be uh jumped on by the bad guys so again it's not theoretical. I, I, remember, I remember to say that because the uh, fixes that Adobe has just offered for Reader and Acrobat are like, yeah, we, you know, update, but nothing horrible happening with them as far as we know. Um, Reader and Acrobat 10, versions 10.1.2 and earlier need to be updated for Windows and Mac. Uh, version 9.5 and earlier, also for Windows and Mac. And then over on Linux, since there's no Acrobat there, it's just Reader version 9.4.6 and earlier need to be updated on Linux. So uh, keep that in mind for Reader and Acrobat users. I switched over to, I think it's Sumatra uh, as my plug-in, huh. my, um, my PDF 
plug-in for Firefox, and I like it very much. It's I I just I prefer it. I had I have Acrobat installed on this system, and so Acrobat brought its own plug-in. It's not it doesn't use the reader plug-in. It uses the Acrobat plug-in, and it was I don't know. It was like always bothering me with things. I had trying trying to launch a separate window and doing strange things. So finally, I got tired of it, and I I disabled it, and I looked around and I used Sumatra and I'm on Firefox. I'm very happy with it. So, Oh, and I did want to follow up um, that last week when we were talking about iOS password managers, we've got uh, some questions, not surprisingly, uh, in the Q&A approaching. I mentioned that one password, which you specifically asked about, Leo. It's, and I think ver- the most popular Mac program. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I mentioned that they were just on the cusp I had read of increasing its security, and they have. Uh, On April 9th, which would make that Monday of this week, they released 3.6.5, and the blog posting is uh, 1Password iOS PBKDF2 goodness. And, of course, we know that PBKDF2 is the password-based uh, keyword, you know, uh, password uh, strengthening algorithm. And so under their list of things they have improved, they said improved security. Now using 10,000 PBKDF2 iterations to protect the encryption key, Dropbox authentication tokens are now, are, are now stored in the system keychain, better support for iPad retinas, the iPad's Retina display on iPad 3, of course, uh, and improved login filling and some bug fixes. So one password, as you say, Leo, the most most popular password manager over on the Mac side, uh, just got better. Yay. And I want to let our, our listeners know that. Um, also, many people have tweeted me about a recent Dropbox tech blog it's tech.dropbox.com slash question mark P equals 165. And uh, you could probably also by this time Google, they've got a, they had, they've used a sort of a funky uh, pseudo password, uh, tongue in cheek. It's a ZXC VBN, and then it says colon, realistic password strength estimation. Well, this is very interesting. Um, I so many people have brought to my attention. I just wanted to let everyone know I'm aware of it. Um, this is the Dropbox guys commenting that more and more they are seeing password strength meters wherever they're being asked to create a login on a website. Yes, yeah, you see it all the time. Yeah, and and I'm never good enough. <laughs> uh, well, and what what they've done is they have developed a very nice one Good. and offered it. It's like, here it is. Yeah. Um, and so for next week, I will have a complete analysis of it. I thought I would have time today, but as I was scrolling down through it, it's like, whoa, I'm going to have to read this. I mean, really think about it because it it's, looks like it's extremely comprehensive. And that, and I it looks like they've done a great job. I, I salute them because this helps other developers down in the comments to the blog posting there's a lot of guys saying whoa 
thanks so much. I could I'm use, this. use this. Yeah, as long yes. as it's reliable, as long as it's you know it reflects accurately the true strength of the password. Correct, and that's why that's why I can't say anything about it today. Right. I will. I'll have a complete, uh, you know, an explainer in chief uh, evaluation of it uh, for next week. Um, and uh, really briefly, I I just wanted to mention something that might be of some interest to our listeners. Leo, I know you. I have heard you on some other podcast talking about genetic testing. And yeah, I, I did twenty three in me. Yeah. And but it was it's now two hundred nine dollars, wasn't it a lot more? It's money? actually like, is it really two hundred? Because I thought it was closer to a hundred. Anyway, yes, oh. it's a lot cheaper. Yeah, and so, it was worth uh, doing. Although I will say that it is not the full genome, right? You know, you, you know, it's not as uh, it's not as cool as one would hope. But it's I had it's I a had start. thought that it was more like a thousand dollars. It's ninety nine dollars. Uh, for the test, and then they encourage you to th subscribe for $10 a month because then they will notify you. I think you have to do it, so you're right. It's $200 yeah. when you include the $9 a month um, subscription because then they notify you when they find out new stuff about any of the genes that you have. Right. So anyway, uh, just, I, I didn't realize it was so inexpensive. I immediately ordered it, and I'm waiting to get my saliva kit so I can spit in it and... Uh, and see yeah, what it's they really can tell easy. Me. Um, in fact, I should show you because uh, I'll give you an idea. For those who are interested, I'll, I'll give you an idea. I'll show you my page. Um, what one of the things that they do is they uh, they give you surveys because they want to match, uh, you know, your phenotype with your genotype. So your history, your sexual orientation. They have a cancer family history survey, so they encourage you to take these. But if you uh, if you want to then look at your disease risk, for instance, based on genetics, and remember. We don't know, you know, exactly what the connection is between certain genetic markers. You know, my my risk of coronary heart disease is fifty eight one percent, fifty eight point one percent, but that's because I'm a white European male. You know, right. so men yeah, well, of European example, ethnicity. You know, it, right? it it says nothing about your diet when right. so it's like you know clearly as we know most a, disease is systemic. It's 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 a combination of genetics and you know environment that uh but it's interesting it's great and it, yeah there's some stuff that is great for instance there's here's carrier status these are you know genetic markers that you might pass on to your kids um things like tay-sachs disease and then uh, drug responsiveness uh traits whether I'm, I'm likely to become bald that's fascinating yeah. my alcohol flush reaction none i am unlikely <laughs> to taste bitter perception i have wet earwax my eye color, likely brown, yes. My hair curl, slightly curlier hair on average, absolutely. Wow. Likely lactose tolerant, yep. That's probably because I have uh, some Nordic or Germanic heritage, right? Malaria resistant, not resistant. Male pattern, baldness, typical odds. Muscle performance, I'm a likely sprinter. <laughs> Sorry. Because uh, you can see how some of this stuff doesn't, you know, is more environmental. Yeah, I just, I didn't realize it was so inexpensive. Yeah, so. and, and well worth doing. As long as you understand it's not 100% complete, it's not your full genome, it's a, a few markers. But it's really, I think it's great. It's well worth doing. Yeah. And if you can get your family members to do it, get your mom to do it and stuff, then then you get additional uh, information. Okay, mom, spit in this vial. Yeah. Um, Why not? Okay, so two little goodies from the Twitterverse. Um, Kyle uh, uh, Skrynak 
who's in Apex, North Carolina, uh, and he's at Strynak Creative. Uh, he said, SGGRC, the Open DNS, DNS crypt uses 112 megabytes of RAM on my Mac. Huh. Does that sound resource-hungry to you? It's like, oh, 112 megabytes. Well, God, yeah, I, I look at that as a fraction of a gig, and it's a large fraction of a gig. It's, you know, wow, uh, 11%. So it's like, yeah, that seems like a lot. You know, as I don't know where it stands in its development release. I guess it's, was it, in beta on Windows and released for the Mac. I don't remember now what where it is, but wow, that's a lot of memory to give it. So maybe they'll they'll work on uh, paring that down. And then Mark Cipriano in Australia, he said at SGGRC question: How can I store important docs, for example, birth certificate, etc., online? Encryption, Dropbox, Evernote. Can this be done safely? And I, I caught my eye because next week we're going to talk about. Spider Oak, um, and I can't think of the other one. There's two of them. I use uh, Spider Oak, and I really like it. Um, perhaps Walla. Oh, Box Crypter Box. was the other one I wanted okay, to look at. Okay, that's Box.net. Yeah, yeah. Spider Oak, Spider Crypt, or uh, Spider Oak. Uh, spider Oak. Yes, uh, Spider Oak looks very nice, and Box Crypter. So I'm going to do the full. Uh, tear it down, look at the technology. I've established a dialogue with the Spider Oak people, so they're standing by uh, to provide me, to answer my techie questions, which I'm sure I'll have, and I've already got some, in fact. I have and so some. That's, <laughs> next week, that's next week's topic. It's got a little bug. I, uh, for, you know, I have a, a Spider Oak account. I think I paid for 200 gigs. I paid for a lot. And for some reason, uh, on one of my machines, even though it's on the same account, it doesn't recognize the other machines. It's kind of weird. Um, anyway, I'd be, I'd be very interested. I, Spider Oak is one of those that offers pre-ingress encryption. Yes, that's what caught my attention. Yeah. And I like it very much. Just from a philosophical standpoint, mm -hmm. they, they are rigorous and ruthless about individual security. Yes. I mean, they, make a, they, go, they bend over backwards, making it absolutely clear that this, as you said, is pre-egress or pre-internet encryption. That right. they do not have your password. They don't want it. They they're 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 going to go to every length possible not to be able to ever decrypt what you provide. So it is encryption, and it is really looks like it is secure cloud storage. I've been I've so, been pretty happy with it. Yeah, yeah. And then Boxcryptor is different somehow. Right. somehow. <laughs> I don't know how, but I will next week. So I'll I'll have the the full tune up there. And I did get a nice note from a William Lorman, and he said he, his subject was a classic spinwright story with an iMac twist, which is nice. He said, hi, Steve. I'm a longtime follower of your work and customer since 2006. And he sent this on a April 2nd, so this is recent. He said, I just had a scenario I thought you and Mac users would appreciate. One of my customers' iMacs would not boot and I could not get it back with two well-known Mac tools that reported hardware problems. This happened when the customer forgot to configure the new disk they attached for Time Machine, so they were two weeks since backup. I took the Mac to the Apple Store for a warranty claim, and the, quote, genius, unquote, gave me a not-so-nice response uh. when I asked for the bad drive back. Oh. He said... If the Mac apps I used didn't work, nothing would. 
I said, I want to try Spinrite. He'd never heard of it and said, there is no way a PC product could work on an Apple part oh, dear. or recover an Apple system. Oh, dear. I Not such a genius. <laughs> it is in quotes here. So, yes. yeah, yeah. I put the drive in a PC, booted Spinrite, and I'm guessing you know what happened from there. Spinrite level two got the drive back. Yay. I mounted it in an external enclosure, and the Max Migration Assistant program got the user's whole world right back where it was wow. before the crash. So they did give them the drive. They just were skeptical. Yes. Yeah. The user was very pleased to become one of your customers, which I thank you, William, for encouraging that since he did get the benefit from it, and claims they will never forget to configure Time Machine again. Sincerely, William Moore. <laughs> so, neat story. I love Thank that. You. That is a great story. Um, you don't look at the file system. You don't look at the operating system. Uh, you don't care if it's HFS plus, NTFS, FAT32. You're not looking at that level. Or TiVo. Or TiVo, <laughs> right. Which I think uses right. uh, e, uh, the Linux file system. Uh, it does, except some of them are byte-swapped because so oh. they were PowerPC-based. So, so they were they're big, big Indian. Indian. Yeah. Yes, wow. exactly. Wow. Uh, that's that's an But see, you don't care because you're just looking don't at sectors. Care. You're asking the yep. drive. The only thing, the reason you don't have a Mac version, I know, is because you use an interrupt that's only in the PC BIOS. You haven't done the EFI version. Right. The, yeah. the, I, I, there's a lot of people want it, and it's, it's definitely in our, our future plans. Non-trivial. I think you kind of have to write your own in thirteen. I think is what you'd have. To oh, do. I, I can't wait. I'll look <laughs> it's not hard. I bet you int thirteen is you know just a few lines of code. I mean, how complicated could it be? Uh, let's talk a little bit. As long as we're talking about cloud storage, uh, about uh, one of my favorites. Let me get the right uh, right underlining. There we go. Uh, which is Carbonite.com. See, uh, we were talking about Time Machine, and Time Machine's great because it backs it up automatically. I use Time Machine on my Macs. Um, but there's one little negative about uh, that kind of backup. It's local. It's backed right up to your, uh, you know, an a attached hard drive. In my case, I, I use a network attached hard drive, but it's still in the same building. What if there's a fire? What if there's a flood? What if there's a tsunami? What if somebody comes and takes everything? Then your backup goes along with your original. This is why off-site is so important. And uh, I think, you know, I would say there are, Maybe three things I would look for in a backup solution. It should be automatic. You shouldn't have to think about it. It should be continuous. It shouldn't wait. Like, shouldn't do it every Sunday. It should do it as changes are made to the hard drive. Those changes are backed up. And it should be off-site. Uh, that's what Carbonite does. Mac or PC automatically uh, backs up whatever's on your internal hard drive. In fact, everything on your internal hard drive, if you ask it to, for only $59 a year. That's less than $5 a month. It is cloud storage. Uh, because you can log into your Carbonite account on any computer or the smartphone or the tablet. They've got free apps for all the platforms, and there's your stuff. But the most important feature of Carbonite is when disaster strikes, and it does. You press a button, log in your Carbonite account, press a button, and it's all back. And that is a nice feeling. Disasters happen. We know that. It's great that Spinrite exists. But after all, in the long run, it's best to have a good backup. Carbonite.com. Use our offer code SECURITYNOW, and you can try it free, no credit card needed for two weeks. If you do that and you decide to buy, and I always encourage people to take advantage of these free trials. All our sponsors offer them, uh, and that's why. Um, I'm, I insist. I say, look, we've got a smart audience. 
they should try before they buy. And if you believe in your product, you'll let them, and they do, without even a credit card. Just go to Carbonite.com, use the offer code SECURITY. Now, if you decide to buy, it's only $59 a year, but you'll get 14 months for the price of 12 when you use the offer code SECURITY now. you got to back it up to get it back. I don't know why we have to say that, but it's true. I think people know it by now. Best way to do it, Carbonite.com. Steve, for you, I have questions. Yeah, we got some great ones. Let's let's uh, let's get right to them. Uh, oh, I closed them, and that was a foolish thing to do. Let's op- let's reopen them and uh, take a look. Security now Q and A one forty one. Question one from Shane in Phoenix, Arizona. Is secure deletion necessary when using full disk encryption? Well, that, you know what? That's a great question. Stephen Leo, first off, I love listening to Security Now. It's great. I have a quick question. I use a MacBook running Lion. I've enabled full disk encryption with Apple's built-in file vault feature. Given all that information is stored as encrypted gobbledygook, is it necessary for me to use OS X's secure delete tool when erasing sensitive files? Namely... If my encryption key were compromised, would it be feasible to recover encrypted data that has been erased? My first impulse is it's not feasible since any information on the drive is just noise. But I defer to your expertise on this one. Thank you, Shane. Well, it's interesting because, and it's an important question, because the answer is yes, you still do need secure deletion. That's not what I would have thought. And the reason is while... The, all of the data is stored on the disk as scrambled bits. When viewed from inside the operating system, it just looks like a file system because the encryption occurs on the way out and, and the de- decryption occurs on the way back in. So if regular file deletion is is what typical OSs do, that is they just mark those regions unused now, they're, they're undeletable. So you can undelete files even if it's on a secured encrypted file system because, again, the, the files stored are gibberish, but the operating system, which is on the inside, sees everything decrypted. So so what secure deletion does, of course, is it overwrites the file so that the data is is actually gone and and then you're fine. If but you you definitely want to do that even with full disk encryption. So to be clear, Shane said if my encryption key were compromised, meaning if the full disk encryption was decrypted do uh, do I wish I had been using secure deletion and the answer is yes because any file that can be undeleted or you know the 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 disk scanned from inside the operating system to find debris from from temp files and other things that were not securely deleted those are still available if you're on the inside which is you know which is where you'd be if your encryption key were compromised. So yeah, it's still worth doing that. Interesting. Mark Martin, Lansing, Michigan, has a follow up from last week. I went looking for more information about the Elcomsoft presentation at Black Hat Europe 
that you mentioned on uh, our last episode. I found the slides at media.blackhat.com. Actually, I've clicked this link, and I don't think they're there, but anyway. In them, they discuss the complexity of the master password validation. And a table at the end summarizes this again and includes rates for master password validation for all password managers and the length of passcode that can be exhaustively tested in 24 hours. I was surprised to see that LastPass had an average placement on the list. Given that they determined that a 12.2-digit passcode could be tested in 24 hours, that would seem to indicate that we'd want a longer passcode to become more resistant to offline attacks. Are their conclusions about LastPass accurate, and should I start memorizing my 12 characters of entropy and pat it out to about 32 to feel safe? <laughs> well, there was a table in the original um, document which which I used as my reference for last week's podcast. Mm. And you're right, Leo, I tried that link too, Seems and it, it doesn't yeah. look like it's there. Yeah. Um, what's a little um, misleading is that they're talking about digits, meaning specifically zero through nine. And, and even in, in Mark's own uh, text here, he, he says 12.2 digit passcode. Then later he says 12 characters. So as we know, the strength of a pass phrase is a function of the size of the alphabet. That so, for example, if your for example, if your passphrase only used digits zero and one, then the, each each character position can only have two states, and so it's an alphabet size of two. So you'd need a really long passphrase in order to get enough possible states. So most users are going to be using an alphanumeric passphrase, and in which case you're about 10 times, you're roughly 10 times stronger because you go from from an, an alphabet of 10 to an alphabet of, well, not quite 100, but like 94 or something. So then you are, you're, you're the number of digits, instead of like 10 to the power of how many characters, it's 100 to the power of how many characters and vastly stronger. Wow. So... You know, I didn't talk about it last week specifically because it's like, okay, well, that's not really relevant to most people. Um, most people are going to use a, you know, both a, a complex and a sufficiently long passcode. Right. And I did find the uh, link. Uh, ah. Actually, somebody in our chat room, who's probably the guy who wrote the uh, email, uh, <laughs> just uh, passed it along to me. So ah. I guess it was just a typo in it. If you go to media.blackhat.com, they'll give you an XML uh, a link to an RSS feed that has everything in it, and you can just do that, and you'll be able to find the uh, uh, the announcement that or the the slides if you if you're that interested to read them. Well, and uh, if for anyone who there was a lot of interest, you can yeah, imagine yeah. in last week's topic, and and so there there is great information there. So I would I would encourage people who want more than they got on the podcast to go there. If you want more, we've got more. <laughs> Uh, oops, I did it again. I closed the uh, PDF. One more time. Open her up. Questions. <laughs> Here we go. This is a question three. Steve C. in Rochester, New York says, do mobile devices have a built-in firewall? Steve and Leo, thanks for the great podcast. I've been listening for about four years, and I really enjoy the show. I have a question about iOS and Android mobile devices. Do any of these 
phones or tablets have a software firewall as Windows does. I've been under the impression that if I'm using an iOS mobile device to connect to the Internet over a public unsecured Wi-Fi hotspot, that I'm safe as long as I do simple web browsing. That is, I'm safe as long as I don't attempt to log into a secure website over such a connection. Is there any way that an attacker can inject malware into my device if I'm logged into a public Wi-Fi hotspot? Thanks, Steve C. Rochester, New York. Well, that's a kind of a complex question. Yeah. <laughs> one, one thing to remember is that I'm sure without exception, any Wi-Fi hotspot is also a NAT router. So it will have one IP on the public Internet, and it'll be distributing private IPs, probably either 10.xxx or 192.168.something.something. So, so you get you automatically get the benefit of of the NAT router being a hardware firewall that prevents unsolicited incoming traffic, but that shouldn't make anyone feel safe for two other reasons, which is that most exploits that we're seeing now are not our grandfather's internet exploits, where there were open ports with bad services running, which bad guys could send packets to and take over your computer. Most of them are like what we were talking about at the top of the show, where there's a something wrong with your particular the software in your, in your own mobile platform, um, and you click on a link that takes advantage of that. So there, you're going out to a site and, and asking, essentially asking for trouble, without without knowing it so so software firewalls while present aren't giving us any protection and then the last the last aspect of this is in an unsecured wi-fi environment remember that everybody is on essentially that unencrypted ethernet and so it's not just remote bad guys but many of the things we've talked about, for example, the infamous fire sheep, which allowed people to trivially find other people's Facebook logons and so forth before Facebook and Twitter and Google began bringing up SSL um, all the time, which increasingly uh, is being done, really thanks to fire sheep representing such a threat. So, so you know, there are the, the, the dangers are multiple. And, and various, not only from someone outside who probably can't get in, thanks to the fact that, uh, that the, the Wi-Fi hotspot is also a NAT router, but mostly it's from people right there sitting at the table next to you or across from you. Uh, they have access to your network traffic. If you're, and if you're using login credentials with a, a non-secured authentication cookie, then you are immediately hijackable, unfortunately. But more than that, it's things you do that are, that are, that are leveraging defects in your software, which is, represents today the greatest danger. An anonymous listener. We have many of those. In fact, you're all anonymous unless you tell us. An anonymous listener says, actually asks about iOS's built-in password safe. Did you know? 
Steve, a quick question about iOS and passwords. Safari's always asking me if I want to remember my passwords for websites. That's even on the iPad, the iPod Touch, the iPhone. Sometimes this is the most convenient way. Even as a LastPass user, typing my master password is bad enough on a PC, let alone a mobile device. But how secure is it? Should I say no? From your last show, it seems like Apple's doing almost all the right things to protect my data. If both use secure encryption and good implementations, then the only real difference comes down to LastPass requiring your master password, which adds another layer of authentication. But LastPass also lets you tell it to remember the master password, which pretty much just means you're now invested in never losing that device or in being confident the device could never be hacked or broken into. Considering all that, is having Safari remember my passwords any less secure than having LastPass on my iPad and having it remember my master password? That's a great question. And I came away from last week's analysis of the most recent iOS-based devices, that is everything from the iPhone 3GS forward, where Apple implemented hardware-assisted AES encryption and built unavailable keys. The, the, the keys that are, and I've verified this since, unavailable to the software in any way. You, you can use the encryption, but nothing on an Apple, on one of these more recent Apple platforms, meaning the iPad 2, uh, iPhone 4 and 5, are able in any way Wait, is there an iPhone 5? Is it iPhone 4? 4. Wait. What's the, la- the latest iPhone? I don't remember. Anyway, um, none of these things are able to um, access the keys that are stored in the hardware, embedded into the hardware and unique for every device. So, um, so I- I'm very impressed with this. What this means is that my feeling is it's it's not clearly less secure as long as you understand that you don't want somebody to get a hold of your device um and you need a good uh a good uh code to protect access to the device's UI we now know that apple ties that into the encrypted file system so that everything is being encrypted on the device and it's tied to to you entering that code correctly and that they use good password strengthening to slow down cracking. So maybe the right thing to do is to, to consider a compromise. Consider that, that Safari's own password storage is secure. Apple has done a good job of encrypting it. It's in the encrypted keychain. It's, you know, I mean, it really is safe from, from somebody who doesn't have access to your device. What you obviously need to do then is use the complex login, the, the complex um, uh, entry screen, not just a four-digit passcode. I, I still don't think that's safe. I'd go for the full keyboard and do something you know that that you can easily do every time, but it automatically means that an attacker is going to have a much worse time. And if, if if assuming that they're doing it from the UI and don't have some sort of jailbreak or some way around it, they're the, the machine is going to wipe itself. And that was the other reason that Apple implemented this, by the way, in hardware, is that it means wiping is instantaneous. Apple simply has to wipe the the 
uh, decryption key on the file system, which it can do instantly rather than having to physically overwrite all of the flash memory in the device, which as these things become 64 gigs and bigger can can take a long time. So I really think it is safe. I, you know, with the caveat that you make sure that getting into the device is going to be difficult. That is in terms of, of getting past that, that opening screen. At that point, I've, I've been very impressed with what Apple has done. I think it's it's that's, very safe. That's great. Yeah. Because, you know, I would like to say yes when it asks. That really is a, a convenience. Yeah, it is. And and I'm I'm very impressed with Apple. I mean, they've really taken this seriously. So I, I wouldn't hesitate. Good. Robert Berry, North Carolina, has a great tip and a note about Windows Defender offline. Not sure if you mentioned this, Steve, but I thought it might be worth letting your listeners know that the Microsoft offline malware removal tool which used to be called System Sweeper, is now out of beta. However, it's been renamed Windows Defender Offline. I had some difficulty finding it because of the name change, so I thought it might be a good idea to spread the word. You mentioned it, I guess, uh, some episodes ago, 303, last year. Windows. Yes, De- so I'm- search for Windows Defender Offline. Yes, and you will immediately find it. I verified that. And I'll just to remind our listeners, it's a nice tool... Because it is bootable, it is doesn't. It, oh, so it, you can make a disc out of it. Yes, you can either USB install or a, a, a CD. So you boot it, and it's a standalone, outside of Windows, um, malware remover, which is great for rootkits because it's before the rootkit has a chance to get itself set up um, and and hidden from the operating system. So this is the the offline meaning outside of Windows scanner from Microsoft, and of, of course it's free. So Yeah, Paul and I talked having... about this, I remember now, in uh, December. Right. And he has an article about it on the super site for Windows. Right. Um, and it is, I guess, still in beta. Let me go there and see. Oh, it wants me to log in. Never mind. I'll, I'll leave that as an exercise for the listener. Yeah, it is out of beta now. They, oh, okay. It, and the, thus the name change. Got it. Uh, it was System Sweeper. Now it's Windows Defender Offline. You know they're they're keeping it with the Windows Defender name, which they've already established. So, but the offline that, that's what they mean by offline is not running under Windows, running outside of Windows. You Got boot it. it in order to, uh, to scan your machine. And, and that's the best way to do it, obviously. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Adam Jenkins, question six. He wonders about legacy iOS file system encryption. We got a lot of iOS questions because of your piece, I guess, last week. Yeah. Steve, are you sure? Are you sure that upgrading from three, iOS three to four to five, would not have encrypted the device's file system? I'm pretty sure upgrading between major iOS versions has always required a full wipe and restore of the contents which would have allowed for that encryption to take place. Only minor updates are ever done in place. Well, Adam and everybody else, I'm not sure. I went back and tried to find the reference, which I'm sure I encountered during my research for last week's podcast, where some security types had said that if you didn't wipe and and restore under the iOS 4 or 5, that is, if you were at iOS 3, which was not encrypting, that your file system would never be encrypted. But I I couldn't find the reference again because I wanted to see if I could learn anything more about it in order to answer 
Adam Jenkins' question more definitively. So I've got to say, I'm not sure. Um, what he said, what Adam says, makes sense. And in fact, if if as he says, a major version update I think does require yeah. a wipe, and it, it certainly it surely sounds right to me. And it feels like. That other would have been, what I said last week, would have represented a loose end that Apple would not have allowed. I right. mean, that's hard to understand why they would have done it. Although, there wasn't hardware encryption support in the until the 3GS phone and the later iPads. So, I wonder about encrypting the file system. I guess they do, even if you don't have it, um, if you've got iOS 4 or 5 on older hardware. But still, I, 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 I've been unable to find anything definitive. So I wanted to back away from what I had said and, and not scare people because uh, I can't confirm that. It does, may, it does stand to reason, I think, that if, uh, if you wipe the disk during a major upgrade like that, that in the process of wiping the disk, you're gonna, it, the encryption is going to be turned on when it restores, Yes. Yes, yeah. that's what I would think too. It's yeah. that, that that when you are when you're installing both four and five support whole file system encryption, and so you'd think that that would four four or five would come alive. They would turn their their things on, and then when you restore from iTunes, um, and we know that that the export would have been encrypted by the phone. So on import, it would be it, it would be sucking it in and storing it. In that encrypted in that encrypted format, backup encryption being different from from local file system encryption, but it so it would translate from the backup encryption to the local file system encryption, and you, you, there'd be a lot of encryption there. Yeah, I think you. I, I it sure seems like you'd be safe, but I wasn't able to confirm that, so I didn't want to leave people with the idea that they might not be unknown. Josh in Michigan comments about the security of the lamp uh, stack, the Linux. Um, Apache, right? Uh, MySQL PHP stack. PHP. That's how most web servers run. They run LAMP stacks, including ours. Uh, regarding PHP and MySQL being insecure by nature, as a web developer myself, I profit more from finishing a project quickly, and therefore I am not inclined to salt and hash passwords, verify that file access scripts don't traverse file systems, parse uploaded data for cross-site scripting, check variables against respective types, determine if TLS and modify session cookies accordingly, use prepared SQL statements, and so forth. But I do each of those and many more anyway. The security of code is simply a side effect of how much time a project environment aware and security conscious development team is allowed to design and focus on the project. By thinking like a hacker, we work to prevent the successful manipulation of PHP's environment. While I'm at it, I'd like to mention that MySQL allows for prepared statements forcing all input parameters to explicitly behave as strictly data, even if the parameters contain MySQL injection code. It's just more difficult, and it takes longer to write that way in tests, so most people don't bother. I thought I'd mention that at least the capability is there, even if it's rarely used, because it seemed to really trouble Steve that SQL statements could be modified by user input. Thanks for another terrific security now. So... Uh, I'm glad that Josh is putting all that effort into the security of the sites that he creates. Um, I'm, you know, as he enumerates all the things that he has to explicitly do, which he knows to do, it brings to mind 
the question, well, what about a web developer who is less security conscious, right. who doesn't know that all of those things have to happen because they all represent tried and true and previously exploited approaches or exploitable approaches to securing a site. I, I, I've, I've seen some comments from people you know, yelling at me that PHP is nothing is no worse than anything else, and I completely agree. I, it's not PHP; it's the environment that we've created, and and I liked Josh's question because it enumerates nicely how difficult it is, but how necessary it is to do all of that in order to lock down any website. And he mentions, yes, you know, it's a function of how much time we're given. And so I would tell any managers of of developers, please give them as much time as they need. Well, to, it's, it's also, to, to make it, it may be necessary, but there also is the question, is it sufficient? You know, um, the presumption that he's making is, well, if I do all these things, we're secure. And as we well know from history, you don't, it's it's not possible to be 100% secure. So it may True. be, uh, he's, he's actually sounding a little cocky to me. Like, well, I do all these things, so I know my sites are safe. Um, boy, that sounds like a very dangerous attitude to take. It's necessary. Is it sufficient? I don't know. Yeah. Nathan Long in Charlotte, North Carolina wonders, doesn't coding and assembly limit spin right? Hey, hey, Steve, what are you doing? I'm a programmer at the opposite end of the spectrum. You work in assembler and mentioned that using JavaScript is really high level for you. I work in Ruby and have just started dipping my toes in C, which seems very low level to me. So it may be my question's a bit naive. I'm wondering whether coding spin right and assembly place constraints on what systems it can be used with. Doesn't assembly refer to chip level details? Can spin right be used on any x86 system? Can it work with risk processors? Putting myself in an assembly programmer's shoes it seems like the ability to write C and compile for lots of different machines would be an amazing advance. And it was it was seen that way in 1979. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for entertaining. I added that. That was me editorializing. <laughs> Thanks for entertaining my question and giving any insight into your tools of choice. Well, Nathan, let me tell you. I'll put it this way. When I heard that Mac was dropping the power PC for the Intel x86 platform, I was delighted. Yes. Because it meant that Spinrite could move largely unchanged over to the Mac. Um, it didn't happen the next day, obviously. It still hasn't. But it means that it is entirely feasible. I need to just deal with the, the program's interaction with its environment rather than the program itself. So you're completely right. Um, I like coding and assembly language and that is absolutely tied to the processor which the code runs on you have no processor independence as it's called which is really exactly why c was created and you're right it is very low level the developers of c um richie and kernigan kernigan yeah kernigan and richie um, those guys set out to create the the smallest layer above assembly language 
because they they had coded the first Unix in assembly code. I mean, that's it was written in assembler, and they said, okay, wait a minute, let's let's now we're if we do that, we're tied to the chip. And they didn't want Unix to be tied to the chip. They wanted to be able to more easily move it around to other architectures. So, you know, what's the smallest thing we can do to make us independent of the of the assembly language, the machine language underneath? And that was C. Um, there was a predecessor, BCPL, which was the language before. And so C came after B, and, you know, and that's the one that stuck. Um so I'm, you know, Spinrite will never run, I think it's safe to say, on a non-X86 system. The good news is Intel won that battle. Um, the the non-X86 platforms are the, are the, um, uh, the mobile uh, portable devices that are running the ARM architecture. And we talked about the advanced risk machine, ARM architecture, uh, many podcasts ago. But they don't really have a need for Spinrite today. Um, so I'm glad that our desktop systems have ended up being x86 based and uh, Spinrite can run there. Whew. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's a kind of ironic because, of course... Uh, one of the reasons you work in assembler is so that you can work to the the, the bare bones of the machine, and that it is CPU yes. dependent for that reason. It's the it's the double edged sword of it. Um, but you, when you wrote Spinrite, were uh, actually created a dependency on code and BIOS, as we talked about earlier, and that's I'm yep. sure that's what's holding you back because yep. everything well, else. Yes, it's a library. It's a routine in BIOS that doesn't exist in EFI. I guess I, I guess it doesn't exist. Well, it must exist. It's just not interrupt-driven, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a different approach. You, right. you, you ask it for entry vectors, and it gives them to you, and so you call them instead of having... Ah. It's sort of a different, a different way of so, doing it, so the, and the, it makes it... The capabilities of Int13 are still there. Int13 is the interrupt that accesses the drive. Well, and actually, I'm, Spinrite is still using some BIOS things just because they've always been there. They're there. I, I'm already making very little use of int 13 and so oh, what okay. i will right. what i'll be doing is i'll be eliminating my use right. of int 13 completely and that will then bring me you know up to actually more portability sure. will be a side effect of that sure. exactly yep uh and all the whole world's x86 now it's funny because yeah. intel it was moving away <laughs> from x86 intel was going to uh -huh. abandon it with the uh, prescott and all of that that i can't remember what they were called the new uh, stuff, but they were they were going to get rid of it, and then they realized that was that was a terrible idea. <laughs> was there itanium? Was that that itanium? Yeah. Yep. And it, I can't remember what it was called the uh, replacement, but um, IA sixty four. That's what it was. Yeah, called. I've been I've been coding a lot in the last few. Well, I've been coding Have you? all year. Uh, this this uh, longest repeated string thing that we'll be talking about here before long, right. and I just it's such a pleasure coding in Isn't in. It? in, in Intel assembly language. Nice. I just it's yeah. I just breathe it. So yeah. you know it. Yeah. It's your native yeah. tongue. It is my native yeah. tongue. Yeah. It's actually a crappy assembly language compared to something like sixty eight thousand, which Oh was... God, do I wish they had not won. <laughs> oh I know. With the segmented oh. architecture. You still have to deal with that, right? The segmented memory? No, that's gone. Oh, thank God. You have a flat but you're dealing you're dealing with, you know, a legacy of few registers. And so that right. and like and it's 
it's an evolved architecture and evolution you know never right. never generates right. as elegant a solution as starting from scratch and designing something beautiful right you know the you know the the, the Motorola 68000 uh national semiconductor had a 32000 instruction set right. that is oh it's Gorgeous. just sublime yeah yeah, and that's Intel, what I, I coded an assembler oh. in sixty eight thousand because I was writing for the early Macs, and um, well, I looked at x eighty six. Well, actually, it was it was a three i three eighty six or something, and uh, or it was eighty eighty six. Actually, is what it was. Yeah, and uh, I went ah, I play with this because at that time that you couldn't access all of memory. You had to. It was a segmented memory architecture because the registers were too small. Yeah, and so you had to load a page and then load a, a, an address within that. It was crazy. Yep. And I look at people like you, and I just go, "Whoa." <laughs> well, Whoa. and and the the biggest annoyance is there's a notion of an, an instruction set of something called orthogonality. If you have an orthog an orthogonal instruction set, then the idea is that, uh, for example, all the registers can be used with all the opcodes. That is, it doesn't care. But the Intel architecture is anything but orthogonal. Only like that you, ha you have A, B, C, and D registers, and then something called ESI or ES and DS, and then BP and SP is a stack pointer, but they all all of them have different characteristics like these can be combined in this way and those can't cx is an auto increment um only bx esi and edi can be used for this i mean and so it's like oh it's just and that really creates inefficient compiler code because the compiler has to know all of that it's much easier to write a compiler for an, orthog an orthogonal instruction set because it's able to e to freely juggle registers around and not have to like be as you know like understand all of the minutia of the instruction set obviously this problem has been solved because lots of compilers exist for the x86 but boy it's just it's really sad that intel won this war but i'm sure glad only one person did because i only have to have one assembly language yeah 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 that's true too and it, you know what the new intel stuff's great no complaints boy and we have a lot of power so much power more oh. than we need now i mean it's just done yeah. you know that, that whole thing is done yep yep tyler larson in scottsdale arizona offers uh an opinion on buffer bloat why fixing your router usually won't help you mentioned how a DDWRT variant attempts to solve the buffer bloat problem by limiting queue lengths and protocol adaptations such as RED. Actually, it won't help. The reason is your home router isn't the choke point in your network. The cable modem or DSL modem is. Your router has 100 megabit or a gigabit on both ends, both in and out. Your cable modem takes in 100 megabits or gigabit from your LAN, but could only put out a megabit, 10 megabits, 50 megabits, etc. to the WAN depending on, you know, how fast your internet service provider is. So the buffers that get filled aren't in the router. They're in the modem. The router's buffers are consistently empty. Same story for your computer. Charging, changing your OS buffering behavior won't help either. The only thing you can really do to affect your buffering behavior is artificially limiting your bandwidth at your router. If your modem has a megabit upstream bandwidth, you need to limit the bandwidth from your router to something like 800K below the megabit to keep from overloading the modem. This obviously decreases your overall speed, but can improve your latency under load. It's not perfect, but there you go. And I'm going to give you a side question that uh, we were debating 
in the chat room last week. Does more bandwidth overcome buffer bloat? In other words, if you have tons of bandwidth, do you have to worry about buffer bloat? So these are kind of related, I think. Okay. So yes. he's, he um, says the cable modem or the DSL modem is the is where the buffer bloat is happening. That's not what others have told me, but is he right? Well, that and, and that's that's a question because he's right if the modems have buffers, that is, big buffers. It's not clear to me because the, because a modem is not a router. Yeah, some modems that, come with a router, so maybe that's what he means. Some are hybridized, right? right. Um, but I don't know that the modem itself has has a has a problem. Um, we ought to go right into n- number t- uh, question ten. We'll do this all we'll together. Tie, okay. uh, yeah, tie yeah. nine and ten together because Steve uh, came up with a solution. Steve Snuffy Sims. In Headley, Texas, solved his buffer bloat problem. Steve, a very belated thank you for the many years of assistance you've given me from the early days of Windows 98 net BIOS problems to now. I've followed you and Leo since the days of screensavers. I thought I might give a possible Band-Aid for the buffer bloat problem. I ran the ICSI Netalyzer, which is such a great tool, such a great tool, with a download time of 200 milliseconds, but with an upload buffer of 2,200 milliseconds. Then, in other words, giant buffer, 2.2 seconds. Then I ran my own test per your suggestion of a large FTP upload on one computer while running ping plotter on another computer on the same network. Ping time to a totally different server went from 57 milliseconds to over 500 milliseconds due to the saturation. I'm running a D-Link 825 router and went into the QoS settings, the quality of service settings. My actual upload speed is 650 kilobits. I have a place there to up limit upload speed and set it back to 600 kilobits, which apparently was enough to prevent the buffer from filling up. With this setting, the ping plotter ping time only increased from 57 to 80 milliseconds, while the large upload was in progress on another computer. This didn't help netalize the results, but made a big difference in actual real-world use. Once again, a very hearty thank you to you and Leo Snuffy. So he's saying by by constraining the upload bandwidth, he kept from saturating his network. But we've known about that for a long time. Well, yes. In fact, that is well, that is the that is the effect of the buffer bloat. If if he sees that he that. Pushing too much bandwidth delays the data in getting out of his system. That is, there's a buffer somewhere. Right. And we don't know if it's in his router or in his modem or where. But somewhere, he's able to induce 2.2 seconds of delay. That is, that the buffer's that big. That if he just, if he pumps as much data out as he can then he'll fill that up. And that means that other traffic is that, that's not part of this huge upload, for example, that he's doing. It's, it's waiting its turn in well, the buffer also. Th- but that and, was always a problem uh, because if you saturate your upstream and somebody else is surfing, um, the acts and the sins aren't going to come out. And so you're, you're upstream saturate. You, what, what he's done, I don't know if it has to do with buffer bloat. He's just saying, I won't ha- let one computer saturate upstream. And that way my other computer will continue to have some access. But that has well, nothing, it, that's not buffer bloat. That's just how networks work. If you saturate your upstream with one computer, of course, 
nothing else is going to work very well. Except that, except that all the computers on the network have equal access to the bandwidth. That is, they're all, they're all able to put packets onto the network that'll go out through the router at the same time. So oh, I see. So they have. So he can't saturate it. He can only take his his turn. Correct. There. Yeah, exactly. There's no. There's really no notion of saturation. We've come to think of it that way right. because of buffer book. Ah, I get it. Yeah. So so what he's done is by 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 recognizing that he he cannot push in his case in Steve's case more than 650 kilobits out. He's deliberately limiting himself at his router to 600 kilobits, and and now he reali- now he notices that he's never getting that long delay. So what that means is that he can do big uploads, and everybody else in the family can stay interactive because he's not letting that buffer get too deep, which would be delaying everybody else. Who's who's also trying to use the system? So I mean that that is exactly what you want to do. So that that really does that that ties in with our our prior question, Tyler, who is saying you know he believes the buffer is in the modem. Well, we don't really care where it is, but we what 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 the the you, the recognized solution even from the original videos that were demonstrating buffer bloat a couple months ago was. Throttle your out, throttle your upstream yourself, and that keeps everybody else interactive. It it prevents one person. You see, it's not the one person's hogging the bandwidth. It's one person is is forcing the buffer to be filled, which then hurts everybody. Mm. So one guy can really slow down the right. whole. The whole family. So he fixed it by saying, uh, by limiting his uh, his upstreams to something below his capability. Correct, and doesn't have to be much below. Just oh, 50 enough kilobits. below. Yeah. Because, yeah, because if you're if you're just a little bit below, then there you'll have zero buffering. Really, think right. about it. If 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 it can leave just a little faster than it's coming in, it'll never fill. If it's a little bit above, then it'll slowly build up. Because it won't be able to get out as fast as it's coming in. So, 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 and you really lose nothing because you're either going to have a, you know, the buffer's going to fill up and it's going to be really bad for everybody. Or if you, if you, if you limit yourself to just a little bit less than your upstream bandwidth, you really don't lose any speed. You prevent this buffering. Well, what we really wish is that there weren't huge buffers, that the buffers were only, you know, 15 packets deep and they were just getting thrown away then all of our tcp systems would throttle themselves and again everything would work but you know then this is the point is that buffers are not a good thing to have in a packet routed network they're just not good right so uh what about my what about my contention that having more bandwidth doesn't necessarily fix buffer bloat well having more bandwidth means that it's harder to fill the buffer. Okay, so it does. So, because so, it means, yes, you, so, so you're right, Leo. The idea is that if more bandwidth means that the buffer is being emptied out the other end more quickly, so you have to really, you have to work harder, you know, you, ha- you have to run ahead 
of the out of the bandwidth in order to fill the buffer. Right. So if you've got more bandwidth, it's harder to run ahead of it. Right. Okay. So it does help. Yes. I was wrong. Uh, we're going to go to question 11. Steve Coakley in Phoenix with more Netalyzer test results. After looking into the long times given for DNS resolver lookup latency last time, seems to be due to running the test in the evening when I had long ping times. I have 20 megabit DSL service that's fast in the daytime but starting to slow down a lot in the evening when everyone's watching Netflix. <laughs> Normally, this seems to be true for everybody. Normally, I get about 42 millisecond ping times to 4.2.2.2, but during the evening, pings go up to 200 milliseconds. And f anyway, I found this list of fast DNS servers at theos, or theos, I guess, .in, and tried testing them all. Now, of course, you have a product that does this as well, Steve. They all gave me fast ping times and pretty low lookup latency of around 110 to 150 milliseconds, except for Google. It returned 229 milliseconds. However, they all had lots of DNS problems, like returning names that don't exist, except for Google and Verizon, which didn't have any problems. So it looks like GTEI Verizon is still the best to use, 4.2.2.1, 4.2.2.2, etc., etc. This was a really good observation that I wanted to bring up. I don't think I've ever mentioned it before. You, you First of all, these wacky IPs that you and I are familiar with, for anyone who isn't, those are, there's a set of six DNS servers, 4.2.2.1 through 4.2.2.6, which, you know, I've been with level three for, actually, I was with Vario in the old days, and those used to be Vario's right, servers. Right, they were Vario, that's right. Yeah, and they've always, I don't know where they are or what the story is with them, but boy, I mean, they're, they're within the sort of the the intelligentsia of internetness uh those are what people use now i of course wrote a dns benchmark that i finished late last year which is and, excellent highly recommend which works great and i do have i when i looked at that link that steve provided that that vos.in I remember going there and making sure that I had all of those DNS servers in my master list also. So the benchmark knows about those. The point was that time of day really does matter. It's, we, learned, we saw that vividly during all of the beta testing of, and pre-release testing of the, the DNS benchmark. And I say in some of the web pages, don't just try this once. Um, try it and make a note of what the results are, but try it deliberately at different times of day because a DNS server that may be lickety-split when you try it is just really dragging. So the point is that DNS servers co themselves come under varying degrees of load and they are very load dependent. So, so you really want to, to find the best one. You do need to try it in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, late at night, and make sure that your choices, and, and there's no way that my benchmark can take the responsibility for that. It's got to be the user You're gonna, you're gonna who, do it by who does that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just like, okay, try it at different times to make sure you don't, mis by mistake, choose one that's really fast the one time you tried it, but is like painfully slow when you actually, you know, want to rely on it. 
Uh, finally, our last question of the day, Mr. G, comes from right on time. James Lorenzen in Joplin, Missouri. And he wonders about the difference between 128-bit SSL and 2048-bit server keys. Quick question. You've been talking a lot lately about the number of bits we should use when creating server keys and certificates. How about, or, or the fact that 768 bits has been compromised and that 1,024 bits should be good enough, but the recommended standard currently is 2,048 bits. My question is, when visiting sites that use SSL, they say, hey, safe and secure, we're using 128-bit SSL. What's the difference? So the short answer to this, I realized I have seen other questions. We've talked about this before, but yeah. yeah. But I think maybe I get too complicated or detailed or or <laughs> wander off the track but so here's the short answer SSL uses both both there's two types of encryption or crypto in an SSL connection there is the server keys where we end up with these big numbers the 1024 and 2048 and someday we'll be talking about 4096 and then there's the connection keys, which is where the 128-bit SSL comes in. So it would be more proper for websites to advertise both. That is, the size of their asymmetric public keys, which we'd hope would be 2048, but if they're 1024, that's okay too. And also their... 128-bit SSL, but you know they, I, you know everybody has that. When you have SSL, you're going to have you're going to have that level of of security. So, so again, the the short answer is there are be, because there's two different types of cryptography. There's public key and private key, or also known as asymmetric key, where you have different keys for encrypting and decrypting, and symmetric key, where you have the same the asymmetric or public keys are much bigger because they need to be much bigger to be, to provide an equal level of security due to the way their technology works which is different than symmetric keys which can be much shorter to provide a, an equivalent amount of strength so that's why uh, it's like you know the websites aren't really telling you the whole story they're sort of using what everybody else says all connections use both types one long one and one short one, and that gives us the security that we need. It's just that simple. <laughs> uh, so, in other words, don't worry. <laughs> it's okay. It's meant to be that it's way. It's good. It's all good. Steve Gibson is the man in charge at GRC.com. That means you can go to GRC.com for lots of things, including, of course, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, Spinrite. Now, Steve, if you make a big change and make it Mac compatible... How much is that upgrade going to cost? You're going to charge people for upgrading? Do you know? Uh, don't know. Um, the um, I've got a, a bunch of things that I've got to get done, and then I want to. Then, as I have mentioned, it's I mean it's not even on the horizon yet, but I know what I want to do for what I'm calling 6.1, right. and that is to free it from the BIOS, um, 
Uh, free it. There are some free at last. Free it from the BIOS. <laughs> and I want to update it for a number of things that have happened. Western Digital has 4K sector drives. There are these hybrid drives that use both some EEPROM and some hard drive storage. There's secure erase capabilities. Uh, I want to give it stronger serial ATA support. It, you know, it works now, but sometimes users have to go in and reconfigure things in the BIOS for SpinRite to see it. I, I just want to make things easier and better. That's my short-term goal. And then the longer-term goal is to take a look at Mac and the EFI and, and all of that. Yeah. But so it's it's not happening, you know. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. And, uh, but we will absolutely, as I always have, protect people who purchase and then you know there'll never be any regrets you know we still allow people to upgrade spinrite 1.0 yeah. from 20 plus years ago and get yeah. a discount on spinrite 6 so 6.1 will definitely be free so there's no reason not to get it you know now uh when we do 6.1 that'll just be transparent everyone will be able to upgrade for sure no charge. So go to a grc.com, get Spinrite, get it now, and with, with confidence. You, <laughs> you should also, while you're there, you, there's lots of free stuff, and browse around, you won't be, uh, you'll be amazed, you won't, be, you won't believe the, the variety there, including this show, he's got show notes there, he's got transcriptions, text, as well as 16 kilobit versions. On our site, twit.tv, we've got the uh, high quality audio, the video, and, and that, and of course you can watch the show live, it's always fun. Uh, we do. We usually have some pre-show conversation about coffee, food, vitamins, the stuff that we try to keep out of the podcast. So if you like that stuff, tune in a little early, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern uh, at twit.tv. That's 1800 UTC every Wednesday, unless we move them around. But you can always find the calendar, by the way. I don't, I don't know if we say this enough on twit.tv. Um, that's where you find out where all our shows are. I posted on Google Plus the schedule for today. We have like, I mean, we do a ton of shows. We may not have you next week, right? Uh, next week, I'm not sure. You know, Eileen just, I don't know. Uh, I'm in Vegas. <laughs> we do our NAB coverage. Here comes Eileen, running, running, running. We're going to do the show on Friday, Steve. So expect an oh. email. We're moving it to Friday at 9 a.m. Ooh, I love it. Aren't Sounds I lucky? <laughs> I picked it, apparently. But we didn't tell Steve, so now he knows. So uh, next week, it'll be Friday, 9 a.m., Pacific, 12 noon Eastern time, and we'll do the show then. Perfect. Thanks, Steve. There, consider ready. that your notice. Uh, he's also <laughs> on Twitter at SGGRC. And, uh, and of course, uh, where else? Oh, if you have questions for Steve, I know there was something else, and you want wow. to be on the next feedback episode, which is in two weeks, grc.com slash feedback. There you go. There you go. Somebody's saying, which Friday? What are you talking about? That would be April 20th. So instead of April 18th, we'll be on April 20th because our uh, coverage, wall-to-wall -wall coverage of the National Association of Broadcasters show starts Monday, goes through Thursday of uh, next week. We're all Perfect. going down to Vegas. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Leo. Thanks for being here. We'll see you all next time on Security Now. Security.